Hi, I'm Henry Bear. And I'm Tyler Johnson. And you're listening to The Doctor's Art, a podcast that explores meaning in medicine. Throughout our medical training and career, we have pondered, what makes medicine meaningful? Can a stronger understanding of this meaning create better doctors? How can we build healthcare institutions that nurture the doctor-patient connection? What can we learn about the human condition from accompanying our patients in times of suffering? In seeking answers to these questions, we meet with deep thinkers working across healthcare, from doctors and nurses to patients and healthcare executives, those who have collected a career's worth of hard-earned wisdom. Probing the moral heart that beats at the core of medicine, we will hear stories that are by turns heartbreaking, amusing, inspiring, challenging, and enlightening. We welcome anyone curious about why doctors do what they do. Join us as we think out loud about what illness and healing can teach us about some of life's biggest questions. In the first half of 2020, New York City quickly became the American epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic, with over 200,000 cases reported in the first few months. The bustling city came to a standstill as thousands of people died alone in hospitals and bodies piled up in freezer trucks that could not remove them fast enough. Amid this raging fire, Dr. Dave Chokshi assumed position as New York City's health commissioner and began the arduous task of repairing a broken city, restoring public trust among its residents, and building its resilience against an unprecedented crisis. Prior to this work, Dr. Chokshi led the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation and was a White House Fellow at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. In this episode, Dr. Chokshi joins us to share the core values that drive his public health work and how he navigated the challenges of leading New York through COVID-19. On a personal note, I was classmates with Dave at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School from uh, 2005 to 2009. And I remember a few things about Dave. The first one is that if you're really lucky during your life, you'll meet a couple of people who the more you get to know them, the more you think, gosh, I hope that person runs for president of the United States someday. And that was my experience with Dave. I don't think at any time in my training, I can think of maybe one other trainee I've known who demonstrated a similar depth of character. But what is really remarkable about Dave is that he's also one of the most holistically intelligent people that I've ever known. And to be that intelligent and that thoughtful, but remain as genuinely humble as he is, and I'm not talking about a superficial, self-deprecating appearance of humility, he actually really is humble. And which is why his face is turning red while I'm saying this, and you just can't see that. But he strikes me as a, a sort of a moral compass. And I've kind of watched his career from afar and have been delighted to see that he's gone on to do a number of remarkable things and to hold a number of leadership positions. Uh, and we'll get to all of that in the podcast. But all of that is just to say that I, I really couldn't think of a better person to a better person to interview for this podcast than Dave. And we're really grateful to have him here. So thank you for joining us, Dave. Thank you so much, Tyler. That is incredibly gracious and uh, not at all deserved, but I continue to try to live up to the, the beautiful sentiments that you described. And uh, I'm just thrilled to have a chance to speak with you and Henry. So thanks for having me. Of course. So Dave, can you begin by telling us how did you end up being a doctor? What brought you into medicine? 
Yeah, well, I, I was not one of those kids with the Fisher-Price stethoscope, <laughs> I guess is how I'll begin. I, I was a first doctor in my family, and that meant that you know I didn't really have role models for what it meant to practice medicine. I didn't know the day-to-day of taking care of patients in that way. But what I did know and sort of observe through my childhood and um, young adulthood was all of the ways in which health was connected to opportunity. You know, I experienced this personally uh, as a kid growing up with with asthma, uh, watching how the diagnosis of diabetes affected my father and his life, uh, and then having some early, you know, formative experiences that showed me just how tightly linked health and opportunity were. There's one, you know, that that comes to mind. It was a, a summer that I spent as a college student in uh, Mumbai. Um, actually, all of my extended family lives in Mumbai in India. Uh, it's where my parents grew up. And I had the chance to work for a nonprofit organization called Committed Communities Development Trust in Kamatipura, which is one of the red light districts in Mumbai. And, uh, you know, this was around the turn of the century, about 2000. And the organization was providing childcare for uh, the children of commercial sex workers in Mumbai, many of whom had been infected with HIV uh, as a result of being a sex worker, and many of whom had transmitted that infection to their children. You know, I, I thought about the lot of the kids that we were taking care of. And I thought about how little separated their life and, you know, the opportunity that they would have in their lives from mine. You know, if things had just been slightly different with respect to uh, my family and, you know, and their path, um, I could have very easily been in the shoes of the children that we were trying to take care of. And I saw everywhere from that experience, from, uh, you know, a few others that I had early in my career, that it's not just a connection between health and opportunity, but it's often a cycle. You know, what I think of as, as either a vicious cycle or a virtuous cycle, ways in which illness can beget other problems, you know, often economic problems, sometimes poverty, but also the ways in which good health uh, can can beget opportunity in a in a positive way as well. So it's all to say, you know, I was sort of propelled to a career in medicine uh, because because I cared about health and and I found it so fundamental to people's life prospects, whether it was in a red light district in Mumbai or uh, where I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Can I just ask Dave as an aside? We talk a lot on this podcast about deeper philosophical, metaphysical questions. And we talk, I feel like since we were in med school together, a term that has become very popular in the lay press and even in politics is privilege. And part of what I hear you saying is that it really is so striking to think about the differences in inherent privilege with which a person is born, depending on their zip code, their parentage, their social capital, their family situation, 
and on and on and on, right? And there have been many studies recently demonstrating, for example, that one of the most determinative forces in a person's life in the United States anyway, is the zip code in which they're born, right? Which makes sense when you think about the schools to which a person has access and, and on and on and on. But I guess from a philosophical perspective, that relatively early recognition that you had been endowed with enormous privilege because of where you had been born and what your parents did and, and educational opportunities and all the rest that was so much greater than so many other people in the world. What do you do with that philosophically and or how does that help to shape how you practice as a doctor? Yeah, that's a really thoughtful question. And first, Tyler, I have to say, I remember our conversations in med school so well. I, I actually remember uh, we would sometimes have coffee in the bookstore on Penn's campus and try to puzzle through some of these questions together. And I'll just pick up on one of the words that you used, which is endowed. And I think that um, just as you pointed out, many of us are endowed in a positive direction. We have the advantages that you described in terms of family and education and sometimes health as well. But I think the realization that that endowment is not equally distributed uh, and that so much of life's circumstances are in some cases random, in other cases represent the intergenerational transmission of things like illness or poverty, it makes me assess endowment in a different way as well, which is that it generates, it endows us with some responsibility to recognize uh, the structural forces that we've talked about, but then ultimately to try to close uh, some of the gaps that we see in, in our world. One of the ways that I think about this is the difference between inequity and inequality. And the distinction that I always keep in mind is that inequity is a difference that is avoidable and unfair. And when we see inequity in that way, those of us who have the privilege to occupy spaces like we do in medicine or uh, you know, in other sectors, it's our responsibility to take up those inequities and actually change the trajectory, change the direction in which uh, those inequities cause illness uh, and cause lack of opportunity. Yeah, you know, I, I have thought about that idea a lot in the sense that one of the most striking differences that results from these different endowments that people are given is who gets a voice at which table, right? And there are so many tables where important decisions are made. And often, ironically, the people whose lives are most affected by the decisions are the very people who are least likely to have a seat at the table, right? Because the people who have a seat at the table often get to live by sort of a different set of rules, right? They get to kind of float above the fray to some degree, if you will, because of their money, social situation, education, et cetera. And so I think that oftentimes our political discourse is phrased in the context of rights, but like what you were saying 
I, I find to be to have a lot more moral valence, which is to talk about responsibility. And I think that if you have a seat at the table, thinking about having a responsibility to act vicariously on behalf of the good of people who don't have a seat at the table is a really important moral idea. And I feel like in medicine, that's a place where that is particularly important because medicine deals with such a right we don't we often don't even think of health as a thing separate from ourselves it's just part of ourselves it kind of defines who we are right like i can imagine that as a kid with asthma you know asthma wasn't a thing outside of you it was part of how you you know existed in the world mm. right and uh, i think that idea of of vicariously offering a voice for the voiceless is really important mm. yeah and i think it again puts the onus on people who who bear witness in a way to observe keenly to make sure that we understand. And I guess, you know, the way that I would put it is to move from sympathy to empathy, right? To, to push ourselves to more deeply, you know, walk in the shoes of um, the people that we aim to serve in order to bring as authentic a perspective as possible to the tables that, that you describe. And I just have to share, I mean, what you were saying brought to mind for me, um, I had the privilege of serving as a White House fellow in 2012-13. This was in the Obama administration, not too long after the Affordable Care Act, you know, had been passed into law. And as a White House fellow, I was assigned to the Department of Veterans Affairs. So um, the secretary of the VA asked me to be the representative on the interagency working group on implementing the ACA. And I remember going to my first meeting of this working group, and it was in the Roosevelt Room of the White House. You know, it was one of these moments where I looked around, you know, at the mahogany table and the portraits on the wall, and I kind of pinched myself, like, is this actually happening? You know, am I, am I actually here? But, you know, my, my second sort of reaction was I, I took a look at the people who were around the table and I realized that with my sum total of three years of residency and four years of medical school, I was the most clinically experienced person in the room. You know, it's, it's about making sure that because we have this unique privilege in medicine to bear witness, you know, to understand our patients' lives in a depth and a color that is very rare in many other professions, um, that we take that uh, with the gravity that it's due and we bring it into rooms like the one that I was in. It's something that, you know, I talk about with my wife a lot. My wife is an educator and there are just so few other careers where you have the chance day after day to walk shoulder to shoulder with someone who may have a completely different arc of life um, than you do, a different set of life experiences, and your charge is to understand uh, where they're coming from and to try to remove barriers from them going forward. But it's not just in clinical practice, you know, it's also in, I think, you know, sublimating the frustrations that we see in the exam room and bringing them into the halls of power um, so that policies and structures can also be changed. So 
I really appreciate your elaboration of this very mission-driven approach to healthcare leadership, whether it's about healthcare equity or empathy. But I'm also wondering whether you could just walk us through your journey in this leadership career, from finishing medical school all the way to becoming the New York City Health Commissioner. In particular, what was it like to step beyond the clinical setting to engage in the broader public conversation and tackle massive systemic issues? I always describe myself as a primary care doctor with a public health heart. And, you know, by that, I mean, I love practicing medicine. I love taking care of patients. You know, during my clinical training, uh, I focused very intensively on becoming as good a clinician as I could possibly be. But it was always with an eye toward reaching for health and remembering that medicine is but one force, you know, in people's lives. And particularly if I, as an individual, but more importantly, if I wanted the system that we're all a part of to really care about health beyond healthcare, it meant, you know, engaging beyond, beyond a clinic, beyond a hospital, even beyond, you know, a healthcare system to address all of the other, you know, fundamental drivers of health that we've spoken about a little bit. And so my path was, I came to medicine from health in the way that I described, you know, beyond the, the experience in India that I relayed. Um, I had a number of other early formative experiences. For example, you know, my first experience in public health was working for the Louisiana Department of Health. Uh, I grew up in Baton Rouge, as I mentioned, and Hurricane Katrina was one of my first experiences where I saw a natural disaster, not just, you know, wreak the devastation that we know that they can, but to have it intersect with my own life in a way that I felt it very viscerally. You know, I, I it was my neighbors whose homes were destroyed and whose lives were interrupted. And so I had the chance to work at the health department before and after Katrina. And, you know, I sort of ingested some lessons from that as well, particularly the idea that people who were already uh, living on the margins were the most likely to be further marginalized during a time of crisis. And so uh, I saw all of the ways in which our existing systems were falling short, whether in a crisis like uh, Katrina or the prior pandemic, you know, the HIV AIDS pandemic that I described. And so I really came away from those experiences believing that it is our obligation to, uh, yes, work, you know, as well as we can to take care of patients who are in our charge, but then ultimately to not allow that to end when uh, we see the barriers, you know, and the structural constraints that our patients have by virtue of our imperfect systems. And that's what really drove me to, to pursue uh, leadership positions, you know, at the policy level in a healthcare system, uh, and then ultimately in public health as well. Dave, one of the things that has always impressed me the most about, I don't know, the the way your mind and heart work together, I guess, is the ability that you had even 
from what I gather starting in college, to marshal significant resources in unusual ways to try to affect good things at the end, but in a sense that required a lot of complex coordination to get there. So as a way of trying to illustrate what I'm talking about, could you talk a little bit about universities allied for essential medicine, sort of what that, where that came from, how it came into being, how you conceived of it, and, and sort of what, what the idea is behind it, how it works? Yes, and, and thank you for the opportunity. Universities Allied for Essential Medicines, also known as UAEM, was a student um, nonprofit organization that I became involved in in college and then in grad school and med school. And the fundamental thrust of it was uh, to try to improve access to medicines in developing countries. We saw, you know, during the HIV AIDS pandemic that we had these miraculous medicines. They were described as having a Lazarus effect for how remarkably, you know, they could change people's lives and bring them back to health. And I remember being so puzzled and then dismayed and frustrated by the fact that despite the fact that we had these medicines, they weren't getting to the places where they were most needed. Places like India, you know, where where I saw the the devastation that that created across generations, but also sub-Saharan Africa, you know, parts of South America. And, uh, you know, for me, this was this was one of the first instances where I saw in such sharp relief that it's about implementation and not just innovation. We, you know, the scientific endeavor, particularly in the United States, has brought to bear miraculous medicines like antiretrovirals or the curative therapies for hepatitis C, but we haven't done the same thing with respect to getting them where they are most needed. Uh, This is sometimes referred to as the fact that we are all breakthrough and not enough follow through. So UAEM, you know, was a chance to try to take on that problem and to do it in a way where, where students actually have a locus of power in universities, uh, because universities often held some of the fundamental intellectual property rights, patents, and licenses that went into creating those medicines in the first place. And, you know, for me, this was a chance to organize some of my fellow students. You know, when you just look at the facts of the matter, it becomes so clear what an injustice this represents. But sometimes being confronted with injustice is paralyzing. And you say, what can I, as a student, possibly do about these, this giant global you know, problem? And this is one thing that I've tried to take with me you know, from that experience is the notion that it's better to light a single candle than curse the darkness and to start where you are. You know, to start with the place where you do actually have some standing, some power, uh, in our case as students, you know, in university campuses, and then trying to expand out from there. If more people did that, you know, if, if all of us did that for the problems that we are confronted with, the injustices that we bear witness to, then we would live in a different world. And so the obligation starts with us. And what I've always found is that when you are clear-eyed about 
the problem and the injustice that you're trying to take on, very often there are other people who will be uh, inspired to join you on that campaign. And there's a lot of joy in that beyond, uh, you know, beyond the mission of that work. Yeah, I'm, I'm brought to think when you mentioned the problems being that we have so much innovation, but not enough implementation. There was an article in The Atlantic, it was in the last month or the month before that edition, talking about that very issue. We do such a fabulous job of bringing to the market incredible ideas, but then have great difficulty in making sure that they're implemented widely, let alone fairly. Can you talk a little bit then, Dave? So, you know, certainly for all of the leadership positions that you've held in various places, certainly the most public leadership position that you've held was that you were the New York City Health Commissioner for much of the pandemic. I don't remember off the top of my head the name of the person who preceded you, but I know that there was this kind of tornado of controversy about a number of problems with the New York City Health Office. And that person left, I don't know that we would say in scandal, but certainly in the middle of controversy. And then right as the pandemic is at its crest, you're brought in both to repair the bridges that had been burned from the controversy from your predecessor, and then also to deal with, you know, a hopefully once in a century pandemic, right, to, to deal with something that, I mean, you mentioned HIV AIDS, but of course, that was a little bit different because of the mode of transmission. And it was in, you know, some ways more of a slow burn than a raging fire. But here we have this pandemic that was, you know, the first thing like it since 1918. Just take us inside, like when you arrived on the ground in the health commissioner's office and are presented with this, you know, gargantuan dual task of repairing relations and managing the pandemic. What was it like? It's the hardest thing I've ever done, Tyler, and may, maybe the hardest thing that I'll ever do in my life, but uh, just a, an enormous privilege to to have been asked to serve in the first place. I was asked to serve in August of 2020. I had been one of the leaders for the public hospital system during the really tragic first wave of COVID in New York City in March and April of 2020. You know, I can share some more about that, but uh, you know, but briefly, I was working on our surge strategy as well as things like our telehealth initiatives and meeting some of our patients' social needs amidst everything that was happening. Um, you know, beyond the direct effects of the virus, and because I was one of the leaders of the public hospital system, I I became known to City Hall as well as uh, the the then mayor, Mayor Bill De Blasio, through that work. I had never been in the spotlight in the way that, you know, was called for in this job. And, you know, I'll just admit very candidly, I entered into it with a lot of trepidation. You know, as you alluded to, there were multiple facets to the job that were, each of them were quite daunting, you know, in and of themselves. I was brought in to heal a rift between the public health care system and the health department, which was playing out in the front pages of the New York Times in a way that you just don't want to see for, you know, the the government agencies that are charged with the response to this, uh, you know, once in a century pandemic. I was thrust into doing daily press conferences, you know, before the the New York City media gauntlet. And I was taking the reins of an agency that was somewhat beleaguered, uh, had encountered, you know, some criticism, and 
was carrying this huge responsibility on our shoulders um, with respect to pandemic response. Oh, and by the way, everything was virtual, you know, so the entire workforce that we were trying to trying to lead and create a new day for, uh, this was all done by Zoom and Teams meeting. So it was, it was just incredibly challenging. And, uh, you know, the, the only real comparison that I had to it was those first few weeks of internship, you know, where you are uh, so reminded of all of your shortcomings <laughs> at, at every, you know, corner, everything that you don't know, all of the ways in which you're not strong enough, you know, you're not good enough, you're not fast enough, but you put one foot in front of the other. I remember I had a senior resident who was seeing me like fumble with my pager that was exploding, you know, one evening on uh, the general medicine night float service. And he kind of put a calming hand on my shoulder and he said, you're one person, you know, you just need to do what you can in this moment and then take the next moment and then do the next admission, you know, and then take the next admission. And it was such a straightforward piece of advice. And it was a powerful reminder of the fact that that's the only way that you can navigate through chaos um, that feels overwhelming is to, you know, take hold of yourself, check your own pulse, as they say, and then be steady, you know, through all of the work that awaits you. And, you know, that's, that's what I tried to do at the health department. I knew a big part of it was about earning trust, you know, earning the trust of my colleagues who, um, who were under, you know, a new leader uh, that they were trying to figure out, you know, what I stood for. And so I was very, you know, upfront about what my core values were um, and why, you know, those core values had served me well and would continue to um, be my my guiding lights, you know, during this difficult period. And then we had a chance to organize our vaccination campaign, you know, the largest vaccination campaign in the history of the city. And this was so important, I think, to be able to turn some of the narrative around for public health, certainly for the health department that I was leading, uh, because it gave us a chance to not just be the department of no, as I sometimes said, you know, to say we we shouldn't be doing this, you know, your holiday gatherings are dangerous for this reason. And, you know, we need to have these protections in place and to organize what I think is public health at its best, you know, to have a massive infrastructure that's based on uh, being in the community and bringing something that can very tangibly benefit uh, the health of the people that we're charged um, with serving. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a of a flavor. Um, I guess the last thing that I'll say in in just this initial reflection on the health commissioner job is in one of my last speeches to our beloved city to um, you know to New Yorkers, the way that I put it was that there are jobs. There are careers, there are missions, and then there are callings. And for me, you know, it was undoubtedly 
a calling to have been asked to serve as health commissioner during this time. I was never short of motivation when I woke up in the morning, as exhausted as I usually was, you know, on most days, because I knew that every single thing that we did a little bit better, a little bit faster, in a more equitable manner, each of those things would translate into averted suffering and into lives saved. Uh, And so I look back on it as, yes, a very intense and difficult period, but with a a huge amount of gratitude that I had the chance to, to serve people in the way that we did. Earlier, you talked about how one of the most important things you had to do as you stepped into this role of New York City Health Commissioner was to rebuild that trust between the public and the government. I can imagine this being a really daunting challenge, especially since you, by your own admission, hadn't really taken on any sort of public-facing role like this. So I'd like to know, what was your strategy going in? What was going on in your mind? Yeah, you know, the aspects of leadership that I have to offer are pretty they're pretty anodyne. You've we've heard them before, but it was about, you know, trying to uh, genuinely execute on them. So I'll just give you, you know, a couple of examples, but but a lot of it boils down to number 1, core values, number 2, communication, and then number 3, demonstrating care. So, you know, for core values, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I, I really credit my my wife uh, with having the foresight to have engaged uh, our whole family in a core values exercise. Where, if if your listeners haven't done this before, you know, I highly recommend it. You can just Google core values exercise and find the formal way to do this. But it helps you sort of winnow down to the values that are at the heart of what makes you as an individual person tick. You know, for for some people, it's about integrity. For others, it's about compassion. For me, the three core values were truth, justice, and kindness. And being upfront about the fact that those were the, the things that I turned to in the most difficult decisions that I encountered, whether personally or professionally, I found that, you know, people respond to to knowing that that those are my uh, touchstones um, in moments of of crisis, and that that kind of relates to the second piece of it, which is communication. This is so cliche as to almost be boring, right? Like, yes, everyone talks about communication, but what I find that people don't appreciate, particularly about communication and public service, is that it's not what each of us was trained to do with respect to communication, you know, particularly when you come from an academic background, fancy places like Stanford University, you're prized for your originality, you're prized for being the person who has a clever new take on a problem or a different frame for talking about it. Communication when it comes to leadership, at least in my experience, is far more often about persistence, about being willing to say the exact same thing 
400 <laughs> times and not get bored of doing that. And actually, the 400th time that you say it, you say it with as much passion and authenticity as the first time that you said it. Um, so anyway, so that's, that's a, another piece of it. And then the third part is demonstrating care. I mean, you, we know this from our clinical practices, but I find that the way that you engender trust among teammates, among colleagues is just quite simply to care about them, you know, and then to demonstrate that care to know about the family struggles that people might be going through, uh, to understand the anxieties related to a professional endeavor, you know, that you're intersecting with them on, uh, and then to just be human and kind in uh, particularly the best moments as well as the worst moments um, where you cross paths with someone. That is sometimes not particularly in our American culture, associated with strong leadership. But again, in, in my experience, it's the thing that, that means that people will be willing to follow you even when times get tough uh, because they know that, that you care about them and that you're in the trenches with them. Dave, I, uh, your answer about being the New York City Health Commissioner, I, I knew that you were not the commissioner when the pandemic started. I had forgotten the precise timeline. But even though you were in a slightly subordinate leadership, public health leadership role when the pandemic started, I still did want to ask you if you can talk a little bit more. You know, I remember in February of 2020 when we started to see the reports come across the wire from Italy about what the first open Western nation, because of course we had no access to information about what was going on in China at the time, what was happening in the first Western nation that really got hit. I, I remember seeing that. And as more information came out and it became clear that there was pretty easy human to human transmission, and then there was this latency period, so people were infected and they didn't even know and were, and were, you know, spreading it presumably to other people. I just remember having this kind of waking dream one night where I felt like I was as a doctor standing on a beach and watching this tidal wave sort of approach the shore, but just not knowing exactly when it would arrive or how big it would be or, you know, sort of how terrible things would get. And, in California, in Northern California anyway, it was actually a little bit strange because we really didn't have a wave hit us in a serious way until almost a year later. It was really early 2021 when at least this area really got hit. But I remember watching during that time the, the reporting coming out of New York and just feeling uh, what I can only describe as a dark chill right? These, these pictures of like, they couldn't line up the mortuary trucks, the freezer trucks for the corpses fast enough to get the bodies out of the hospital. And, you know, there was the, the sort of famous report of a woman who was a doctor there who committed suicide, at least in part because of the overwhelming emotional burden of caring for people when there was really almost nothing that you could do for them and all the rest. And so I guess all of that is just to say, as somebody who was working in public health at the time, what was it like to be, so to speak, at ground zero for the United States anyway, or one of the ground zeros during such a dark period? Well, you, you described it well, Tyler. And like so many other health workers who experienced it here in New York City, 
in spring of 2020, the, the memories are just seared on my brain in perpetuity. You know, that it was horrific. It was harrowing. It was humbling. The sounds are what I remember. I live in a part of New York City called Queens, a neighborhood uh, called Jackson Heights. And one of the public hospitals in the system that I was a part of uh, was Elmhurst Hospital, one of the hardest hit areas, you know, early in the pandemic and a hospital that was particularly, um, that was particularly overwhelmed. You know, at one point we had 80 patients intubated in the emergency room, which was designed to hold two, you know, maybe four patients who were intubated in, uh, in normal times. So the sounds that I remember were, I live close enough to Elmhurst to where I can just walk to it. And so I would walk down the street and everything was shut down. You know, the normal din that I associate with walking down the street in New York City was absent. And you don't even realize, right, that that's just the background soundtrack of your your normal walk through the city until it's gone. And then you step inside the hospital and it's a totally different type of din. You know, the, the alarms blaring. I remember going on the COVID wards and just seeing the ways in which individuals shorn of their families in terror because we didn't know exactly what was going on. Um, and that juxtaposition, you know, the silence outside and the cacophony inside, it sort of represented what we were going through because it was hard if you weren't in a hospital to really understand, to fathom what was happening, you know, just from watching your, your television screen. And it was just... I mean, there were so many moments that uh, just break you down. I, I remember speaking with the residents at, at Elmhurst who told me what it was like to do pre-rounds, you know, at the height of, uh, of, of that first wave. They would do their morning pre-rounds, enter into their patients' rooms, and pronounce two or three or four patients dead multiple days in a row. You know, this is something that never once happened to me in my entire clinical training. Uh, and so I just put myself in their shoes for a moment and thought about what it must be like to step into the room, to reach under, you know, the patient's sheet, to check for a pulse, and instead to sense the coolness of a hand bereft even of, you know, the warmth of the touch of a loved one for one last time. And to have that be the hour-by-hour hour reality. I practice at Bellevue Hospital, which is another one of the public hospitals. And one of the memories, you know, from Bellevue was one of the dialysis nurses who was particularly beloved in the way that, you know, some of the nurses who have, who have been working in a place for 20 or 30 years are. And there was this kind of standing vigil for the nurse, you know, while she was in the intensive care unit, steady stream of 
my you know fellow colleagues at Bellevue just you know visiting giving good wishes sending healing vibes and you know thinking about what that meant to see their colleague whom they had been interacting with just a few days earlier and also kind of realizing for themselves that this was the risk that they were taking on by virtue of being in the hospital each day and imagining what that would mean for their family if if it were them you know who were in the ICU bed or god forbid you know in one of those freezer trucks so um so yeah those those are you know some of the the really harrowing parts that i remember i guess the other part that i will relay just so that it's not um not all darkness because it wasn't all darkness is the ways in which you know people truly rallied in a way that you know a- anytime i'm feeling down like that's a place where i go to remember what what people did with the mountains that we were able to move when there was the volition to do so. Uh, also in Bellevue, you know, I remember walking through the waiting room of an endoscopy suite one morning, and then literally within hours, you know, I walked by again in the afternoon and it, it had been turned into a fully functioning ICU because we needed that space, you know, to be uh, an overflow space for the ICU or the work that we did, you know, to to address food insecurity among low-income people whose livelihoods were, you know, of course, threatened by the pandemic as well, and who were very worried about having enough money. You know, the taxi drivers, like all of the restaurant workers, you know, who were uh, waylaid by the pandemic, and the way in which people banded together to organize food drives and food delivery for people or shifting our entire system to telehealth, you know, overnight uh, so that people could continue with the ambulatory care services that they needed. So there were so many examples like that, that I, I remember because I saw the ways in which false barriers to progress melted away, you know, in the heat of a crisis. And, you know, I'm afraid that we have, forgotten that along with so much else over the years of the pandemic um, and forgotten what we are capable of when our backs are against the wall and, you know, and people really need us because certainly so many of my colleagues, so many people showed the ways in which they can step up and deliver in a time of great duress and need. I remember in high school reading an essay reflecting on William Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury, where the author of the essay talks about how the depth of moral darkness highlights the brilliance of moral light. And I remember as much as of all of the people that I can think of during the pandemic, the two groups that best exemplify that for me are nurses and house staff, right? So Nurses, people who are not in healthcare, I think just can't have an idea how frankly gritty and gross of a profession nursing is, right? It's dealing with bodily fluids, excrement, phlegm. It's being like right up in the grill of the people that you're taking care of, right? You're not in some faraway room putting orders in a computer. You're like right up there close and personal with your patients. It's hard to do that on a normal you know, Wednesday in 2027 or in 2017, right? But to do that 
knowing that every interaction that you have with the patient carries the risk of you contracting a deadly virus is, and then to just do it anyway, is hugely heroic. And by the same token, I think people who haven't been medical training, it's very, who haven't been through medical training, it's very difficult to appreciate what it's like to go through medical training, right? People think of doctors as people who have kind of a, you know, cush lifestyle and earn a lot of money. But for house staff, many house staff earn 10, 11, $12 an hour, work 80, 90, 100 hours a week, and work, you know, sometimes 30 or even 36 hours at a shift. And that was even more so the case during the pandemic when a lot of the normal work hour restrictions had to be sort of temporarily suspended because of emergency conditions. And so the fact that those people, that you mentioned who would show up at work in the morning and pronounce death after death after death, just kept showing up to work every morning to take care of people who in many cases, they really had nothing they could do to take care of them in the first place. I feel like nurses and house staff equally reflected heroism, genuine heroism during that time in a way that, you know, that, that was one of the things I will admit that made it so enormously frustrating to me to see the public chafe at restrictions on public gatherings and whatever, as much as I totally, totally get that because I miss, you know, public gatherings as much as the next person. But it was just quite the contrast to see that there were people who had a difficulty with that difficult, but, you know, doable thing while you had these other people who were demonstrating such genuine self-sacrifice and heroism. Mm, That's really well said. And I, I think the, the other, you know, common thread that I saw particularly among nurses and house staff and you know the the other workers who as you said showed up every day uh just to make the hospital run you know that we that we assumed would continue to do that despite the great dangers you know to to them and their families is all of the ways in which it's so hard to measure and appreciate how they provided dignity often in the last breaths for, you know, for people who were not surrounded by their loved ones, who were not able to, you know, hug their parent or their child, you know, for the last time. And the small things that they did, whether it was, you know, like spending a little bit of time making sure that a video call was actually connecting for a patient, even when there was another patient in dire need of their services in the next room, sitting at their bedside and holding their hand, you know, trying to rustle up a favorite food so that, you know, someone would have that little spark of joy amidst their suffering. Just countless examples like that, which, as you say, you know, there was so little that we had to offer uh, patients with COVID-19 in those early days. Um, but as usual, you know, it, it was, it was nurses, house staff, uh, th- those were the people who provided those, you know, those small moments of dignity, which meant the world for, uh, for people as they were going through, you know, an unimaginable time. Yeah. I, I remember this very distinct moment during the early pandemic when I was in the hospital and I was, in a patient room and I watched a person who worked as part of the custodial staff come in and remove the liner out of the trash can where people were putting their used gloves and gowns and masks. And 
like everybody at the time, especially healthcare workers, I was thinking a lot about dynamics of transmission and how things flow through the air, right? And so I see this person pull the liner out and then go to tie the, you know, the top of the trash bag together, which of course, you know, all of us have done that at home or whatever a thousand times and never think about it. But all of a sudden in the context of the pandemic, I thought, oh my gosh, what if, you know, the way that they tie it out creates this whoosh of air that comes out and carries with it viral particles that are then washing over them. And this is a person who does this probably a thousand times every day, has probably never been recognized, let alone thanked by anybody else for what they do. They're almost entirely invisible for what they do in the hospital. And yet, as you point out, if that person and others like him were to just say, this is too dangerous, I'm not doing this anymore, the hospital would grind to a halt in a matter of hours, right? And and there's an entire cast of people like that who remain almost entirely nameless and invisible, but without whom none of the more visible heroism of the doctors and nurses would have even been possible. That's that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, the the one other thing that I'll say on this is that we shouldn't forget that we had it, particularly in New York City. I know in other places we had that seven p.m. applause, you know, which which sort of petered out after a few months, and they're still going. You know, our our healthcare workers are still going, and in most cases haven't had a real break. You know, since those really arduous times early in the pandemic. And for people who aren't in a healthcare environment, that is something that is, I know, uh, maybe a bit foreign and can be difficult to comprehend because in part, you know, I, I think it's our responsibility as people who have experienced that to make sure that we're sharing our stories through, you know, through outlets like this one. But it really matters when we think about uh, the healthcare system that we want going forward because there is no system without those people that we rely on every day. Well, Dave, we're, we're nearing the end of our time, but I want to ask you two personal questions to finish. The first one is that, and I recognize that because of the nature of this question, you may be uncomfortable talking about it, but I'm going to ask you anyway. One of the things that has always struck me the most about you and that I admire the most deeply is that you are, as I said at the beginning, one of the most, I've always thought you were one of the most intelligent people I've ever known. And now you're also one of the most accomplished people that I know. And yet, in spite of that, you strike me as genuinely humble in the sense that you are not impressed with yourself. You're not impressed with the power positions that you've had, and you're able to maintain a firm grip on what actually matters the most in spite of all of the successes and and whatever that you've had. And so I wonder if you can talk about how do you do that? Like, how do you cultivate that sense of humility that I think differentiates you to a great degree from many other people who would be similarly gifted or accomplished? That's that's very kind of you, Tyler. But I, what may look like humility is just a very realistic assessment of my capabilities, and I can say with confidence that there is no one more expert than I at my limitations and fallibilities. Uh, of which there's not a a day, an hour that goes by that uh, you know I'm not reminded of them in some way. 
you know, the measure of ourselves should be stacked against the problems that we're trying to solve, the degree to which we are in service to our fellow human beings, and the real change, you know, that we can ascribe to ourselves. And by all of those measures, man, we, we all have so much that we need to do. There is so much that remains unjust and imperfect uh, about this world that we live in. And so, you know, that's, that's where, you know, the idea that we have to be better and work harder comes from because there's there's still you know far too much that is within the control of humanity uh, that that we have not changed and I have to just kind of connect this to our conversation about COVID nineteen because one of the things that helped me get through those really dark days early on in the pandemic was the notion that finally you know things would change. The conversation about universal health care in our country would take on a different valence. And we would understand the need for massive investment of public health, you know, in a way that is categorically different than before. And fast forward, you know, two and a half years later, and I have to admit that that's not the case. You know, we have not been shaken out of our complacency even as our society has been shaken to its very foundations, you know, with over a million lives lost in our country alone. So when, when we think about the scale of the challenge that remains for us, I think there's no appropriate response other than deep humility. So the animating idea behind this podcast, everyone of course is familiar with the epidemic of burnout in the healthcare workforce and to be clear, there are many factors contributing to that, including systemic ones, which we acknowledge. We also feel, though, that there is at least a part of this that is a problem with healthcare workers keeping in touch with what makes medicine meaningful for them. So especially for trainees, medical students, early career physicians, people who are coming up into the prime of their career, what advice can you give? in the midst of all of the many, some of them very difficult things that you've discussed that you have done in your career, how have you kept in touch with, like on a nitty gritty logistical day-to-day basis, how have you kept in touch with what makes medicine meaningful? Well, I love that that is the raison d'etre of your podcast. And I think it's why you've you've achieved you know so much resonance with people because there are a number of forces that are eroding uh, that meaning in medicine and so I'm, I'm just grateful that, that you have this uh, forum, you know, for those of us who are trying to countermand that. So, you know, I thought about this a little bit in advance. I have five, you know, lessons that, that come to mind, particularly for trainees. So I'll just go through them, hopefully relatively briefly. The first, and I think the most important one, is when we're young, and particularly as we talked about before, when we're young and privileged, we spend far too much time burnishing our credentials and not enough time nourishing our convictions. And it's really simply about making sure that we're spending our time nourishing our convictions through conversations like this one, but perhaps most importantly, by staying grounded with 
the family members, you know, the close friends who remind us of what our convictions are when sometimes our hold on them gets a little bit wobbly or we find some of those external forces, you know, pushing us away from them. And, and I think there are other ways, you know, particularly that are more sort of in solitude to nourish one's convictions through reading and through the wisdom, uh, particularly in, in ancient traditions, religious or otherwise, you know, that allow us to clarify for ourselves what the most powerful and deep-seated convictions are. And the reason that I talk about this one first is that, you know, in my experience as the health commissioner during most of COVID, I can tell you it was my convictions far more than my credentials that carried me through in terms of responding to a crisis. So that's the first one. The second one is what I think of as, for, for people who aspire to leadership positions, and I hope there are many because we need more and better leaders in our world. There's an evolution in leadership that, that I've experienced in my career thus far in a couple of ways. The first way is from having the right answers to asking the right questions. Again, we're often, you know, like think about how we learn in medical education, pimping on rounds and, you know, making sure that we have all the knowledge to pass step one, et cetera. But actually, when you get to a, a you know, a, a point in leadership, you're not the one who needs to have the answers, but you do need to know what questions to ask and be very thoughtful about formulating those questions in the right way. And the second piece of this is, is related, which I think of as a move from an evolution from task focus to people focus. Again, we early on, you know, we're very efficient, you know, as interns, we have our boxes that we're checking off and those tasks matter, you know, to take care of people. But then you become a resident and an attending and even outside of the clinical setting, you realize it's about supporting everyone else. Um, and demonstrating care in the way that I described earlier. The third lesson that I wanted to mention is when in doubt, go proximate. I learned this early in med school uh, when we were together, Tyler. Go see the patient with your own eyes. Don't just get the pass off from, you know, the emergency room doc upstairs in your, uh, you know, in your residence lounge. Go down to the ER yourself and go see the patient with your own eyes. Again, even outside of clinical settings, this notion has been so valuable for me to get to ground, to not take for granted, you know, the experience of actually being in the, the place and with the people that you aim to serve. Fourth lesson is never forget that a routine day for you is often the toughest day of your patient's life. When I think of the ways in which we sometimes lose empathy, myself included, it's when we lose sight of this, of this lesson and we treat something that is catastrophic from someone else's perspective as just routine. And then the last one, particularly for people who are interested in public service, is a little bit of a football analogy and I beg forgiveness because I acknowledge that football is a barbaric sport. But as someone who grew up in Louisiana, was 
surrounded by it. It's the notion that public service is like being a running back. You know, they say a good running back always keeps their legs pumping. And that's what you have to do to succeed in public service. You know, any time that I feel like we were able to achieve something, it was because we kept pressing forward. There are always obstacles, but then all of a sudden the field will open up you know, and you have a chance to, um, to run through and you have to be ready to take advantage of those opportunities. So always keep the legs pumping. So I hope one, one or a couple of these are, are useful or speak to uh, your listeners and thanks for the opportunity to share them. Well, we can't think of a more fitting conclusion to this wonderful conversation. Uh, Dave, thank you so much again for your time and for sharing your insights. It's been a true privilege talking to you. Thank you, Henry. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, Dave. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining our conversation on this week's episode of The Doctor's Art. You can find program notes and transcripts of all episodes at thedoctorsart.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate, and review our show, available for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also encourage you to share the podcast with any friends or colleagues who you think might enjoy the program. And if you know of a doctor, patient, or anyone working in healthcare who would love to explore meaning in medicine with us on the show, feel free to leave a suggestion in the comments. I'm Henry Bear. And I'm Tyler Johnson. We hope you can join us next time. Until then, be well.